1948, the people in the British colony of Newfoundland faced a choice. They could become an independent dominion within the British Empire, or they could vote to join Canada in Confederation. The anti-Confederates are not going to get away with it. But St. John's was an anti-Confederate headquarters. Watch in particular the attractive bait which will be held out to lure our country into the Canadian mousetrap. Listen to the Stories Behind the History podcast for our special series, How Did Newfoundland Join Canada? Available now wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The Golden Boy, Winnipeg's iconic statue, modeled after the Greek god Mercury, perched atop the legislative building, he stands at just over 17 feet tall. In his outstretched right hand, a torch. In his left, a sheaf of wheat. He reaches forward as he looks north towards the province's numerous resources, timber, mining, grain. An immigrant from France, brought over during World War I, the Golden Boy is a symbol of youth and the enterprising spirit of the city. So how did this three-and-a-half-ton naked Greek god become a beacon for so many gay men? This is The Secret Life of Canada, a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. Do you know anything about Canada's queer history? Anything at all? I identify as a queer person and it sucks to say that I have no idea. Drawing a blank here, drawing a blank. (laughs) I'm not too informed on it to be honest overall. I know they have the Pride Parade every year and uh... I don't really know any concrete details which sucks. It's something I'm starting to learn a little bit about. I study law and that's in one of my classes we're starting to talk about queer history in Canada but it's something I'm only just starting to learn about. Hey, Leah. Hey, Fallon. So I know June, Pride Month, is a few months away, but I came across some stories that I just couldn't wait to tell you. As we have said before, times like Black History Month and Pride Month and, you know, Indigenous Day, they aren't the only times where we can celebrate these stories. Yeah, that's true. We could celebrate all year, whenever we feel like it, really. Exactly. Canada has queer history from coast to coast. There are so many stories we could tell. Of course. And we should say that lots of queer history was written and compiled by those with the most agency, usually cis, gay, white men. But of course, there are so many voices from the trans community and the black and brown and indigenous communities that were there, have been there, and may have preserved their history in a different way that we weren't able to access. Yes, exactly. So in this episode, we are going to use the word queer to refer to anyone who identifies as 2SLGBTQIAP. And that is anyone who self-identifies as a lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, transsexual, queer, intersex, asexual, pansexual, or two-spirited person. Queer isn't the way that everyone identifies, but it is an identifying term that has been reclaimed in many ways. Yeah, and while the word queer is widely accepted, it's actually pretty contemporary. Queer was and can still be considered in some places to be derogatory, especially if you're speaking to an older generation. 
But let's dive into some history, shall we? On a history podcast? I know, shocking. Yes, let's. Okay. Okay, so tell me some stories. Let's do this. Uh, well, we could talk about the two first men on record to be convicted of a homosexual act in Upper Canada in 1842, Patrick Kelly and Samuel Moore. They were sentenced to death. That's and terrible. although their sentence was eventually commuted, they still spent almost 20 years in prison between the two of them. Wow. Well, we could also talk about the 1952 Immigration Act in which Canada denied entry of, this is their words, Canada, prostitutes, homosexuals, or persons living on the avails of prostitution or homosexualism, pimps, or persons coming to Canada for these or any other immoral purposes. Yeah, they also wanted to ban chronic alcoholics and persons who have been found guilty of espionage in the act. So everyone. <laughs> anyway, we could also talk about the two groundbreaking publications that came out of Vancouver and Toronto in 1964. There was Ask or ASK, the newsletter, or Gay Magazine. Or we could talk about Everett Clipper, the last man to be incarcerated in Canada for being gay can't imagine. So what, what was his story? Everett was a mechanics helper who worked in the small town of Pine Point in the Northwest Territories. In 1965, he was brought in for questioning about a suspicious fire. But by the end of his interview, he had been charged with four counts of gross indecency because he mentioned to the police that he had sex with men and that he had no intention of stopping. Leah, I'd like you to read what lawyer and activist Douglas Elliott said about Everett. Okay. There couldn't have been more than 2,000 people in Pine Point, and he found about a dozen men to have sex with. He must have had the best gaydar of any man I've ever known. That is amazing. I know. It's pretty great. Good for him. I know. A town of 2,000? He was like, yeah, I'm gay. I have sex with men, and I'm not going to stop. Yeah, and you know what? 12 other dudes in the small town are hitting it with me, and we're having a great time. Yeah, at least 12. We go for coffee. We do other stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes I work on their cars. Sometimes I work on on their cars. (laughs) (laughs) The police deemed him a dangerous sex offender and incurably homosexual. He was incarcerated indefinitely, but the huge public outcry over his case partially led to the federal government to decriminalize homosexuality in 1969. Under the liberal government of Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Right, that's where his really famous quote comes from. There's no place for the state in the bedrooms of the nation, and I think that, uh, you know, what's done in private between adults uh, doesn't concern the criminal code. When it becomes public, this is a different matter. Clippert was eventually released from prison in 1971 and was finally pardoned in 2016. In person, or had he passed away? No, he had passed away. So he didn't get to see it? No, he didn't get the apology in person Mm -hmm. or the pardon in person. So while all these stories are worth knowing and learning more about, when I started looking into this nation's queer history, I really, really fell in love with the prairies, especially Winnipeg. And there is so much history there, way more than I anticipated. It's interesting. I wouldn't think immediately of Winnipeg as being like a queer history place. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think of Toronto with the bathhouse raids Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. Montreal with the bathhouse raids, you know, (laughs) and the protests and riots and stuff like that. I don't really think or maybe I guess Vancouver. I mean, many people don't think of queer culture uh, or gay culture or lesbian culture existing in places like the prairies. But as gay activist Doug Wilson said in 1980, gay people are everywhere. (laughs) I think that's probably true. Yes, absolutely. 
The name Winnipeg comes from the Cree, Winnipi or Winnipeg, which means murky or muddy waters. There's evidence of indigenous habitation going back 6,000 years. This was an area of trade, but with that came many disputes. Have you heard about the Red River Rebellion mm-hmm. or the Red yeah. River Resistance? Yes. Oh, yeah. This is when Louis Riel and other Métis opposed the land transfer from the Hudson's Bay Company to the Dominion of Canada. Yes. In 1869, a group of farmers and hunters who were mainly Métis were concerned about their sovereignty and independence as Canada was becoming a nation. This resulted in the Red River Resistance, which was led by Louis Riel. Okay, so I don't want to, like, interrupt, but I'm totally going to interrupt. I have an embarrassing (laughs) Louis Riel story in Winnipeg that I want to share with you. Um, I didn't know him, obviously, but I love Winnipeg. I've been many times. I was downtown at a conference there, and... There were posters as I was walking through downtown and spending time in Winnipeg. I saw these posters. It was just a head, a man's head, dark curly hair, like mustache. And it was, they were distressed, right? So they kind of looked old timey. So I go to this conference, I'm doing a talk. And I said to the entire room of Winnipegers, you know, I love so much that you guys have, you know, posters of Louis Real everywhere and you're so connected to your and I'm saying this and they all burst into laughter and someone at the back of the room's like, That's not Louis Real, it's Burton Cummings. <laughs> and um, for those listeners who don't know, Burton Cummings is the lead singer of the sixties rock band, the Guess Who. He was in town doing a concert. And um Well he's from there, right? He's he's, he's yeah, a yeah. Winnipeg. So I think for me. This episode is perfect because I would like to know more than just Burton Cummings is and the not. Guest. Yeah, Burton Cummings is not Luriel. For anyone else, <laughs> if you could take away one thing yeah. from this episode, Burton Cummings and Louis Riel are not the same person. There you go. Anyway, so yeah, yeah if that's ever on a test, it was a little kids. bit of a detour there, but I felt like we should share. Okay, so Louis no, Riel. That's a good story. I love it. What happened? Right. Okay. So in 1870, the Canadian government sent in troops as a show of military power, and Riel fled to the U.S. That year, the province of Manitoba was established. Treaty 1 was signed in 1871 the next year between the Anishinaabeg, Swampy Cree, and Canada and the city of Winnipeg incorporated in 1873. Okay, so it went from Rupert's Land, which was when the Hudson's Bay Mm -hmm. was kind of running things, to Canada. Mm -hmm. Then it turned into Manitoba and then the city of Winnipeg in the span of a few years. So that seems like a lot of fast development. Yeah, it, it really was. Riel was eventually captured near Batoche, Saskatchewan, and executed in 1885. This is a largely abridged history oh, right yeah. here. We just cut out a lot of things. Oh, yeah, like a ton of things. But it's impossible to talk about the city of Winnipeg without mm-hmm. talking about some of this history. So we have to mention the people who were here first. Absolutely. Yes. And in 1885, the last spike was driven into the ground at Craigalakee, British Columbia. In Winnipeg, the railway provided employment and allowed the city to grow in population and in industry. The rail yard was actually one of the largest in the British Empire. Winnipeg became a hub of commerce, banking, and transportation. What was once a sleepy prairie town quickly became a center. By 1913, Winnipeg was Canada's third largest city. The railway was also a very important place and one of the first places in Winnipeg that gay men would cruise. Cruising being the act of men seeking other men for sexual encounters or companionship. Yes, and other meeting places included the 
YMCA and the Grenadiers Club, which was kind of a surprising place for them to meet because it was a military club, but the manager had a gay son, and so it became a regular spot. By the 30s, men started meeting at the docks near Alexander Street and beer parlors like the Marlboro Hotel and the Alexander Hotel, the Starlin Theater, and the McIntyre Building. I spoke with Valerie Cornick, author of Prairie Fairies, to ask her more about queer meeting spaces. That is an amazing book title. I know, I love it. So good. My name is Valerie Cornick. I'm a historian and the vice dean faculty relations in the College of Arts and Science at the University of Saskatchewan. One of the primary challenges queer people, gay people, lesbians, by whatever term you understand that orientation and action, have known. Uh, of themselves throughout time. One of the key challenges has been finding other people. So being able to find spaces, demarcate spaces as in some fashion or other queer is remarkably important because otherwise one is just this kind of isolated atom moving through time. And so in Winnipeg, gay men in particular carved out a series of spaces in parks, behind the legislature, in railway stations, in bars, in particular, that became sort of known as queer space. And that's really important. And so we see expansion of public spaces for lesbians. We also see the growth of house parties in this time period. But to be at a house party, you have to be invited. You have to know somebody. You have to be able to get in. So Creating space where people can find each other, claiming that space so that you can go on a regular basis and find other people um, is remarkably important. So this is the 30s, 40s, 50s and 60s. House parties are going on. But you know what? 30 years later, house parties are still a thing. Here's Margot Charlton telling us her story. In Winnipeg, one of the great things was parties. Parties and potlucks. None of us had much money, and the club scene was limited. So house parties were really big, and that's where you would meet new people. And when a new person came to town and somebody met them, they would always be like, hey, there's a party, you should come, I'll meet you, I'll take you there. Uh, Shauna Dempsey, who still lives in Winnipeg, and her and some of her friends created, uh, bought a house together, really big, beautiful, amazing house, and um, called it Homo Heaven. And Homo Heaven parties were the best, often involving dancing, uh, dressing up, themes. People would enter in these humongous jackets and snowmobile suits and huge boots and just discard all of this, these layers at the door and then uh, like party like crazy, dance all night and then try to find your shoes and all of the stuff that you left at the door. <laughs> I love this idea of these house parties where, you know, you had to have a special invite and you knew that by going there, it was kind of like this safe space where you could meet someone new, grab your red cup, have a little party and just like meet other queer people and there would be no danger, you know? Oh, you know they're using proper glassware. Yeah, they were using great yeah, glass. They were using <laughs> That's right. Glassware. That's right. That's so right. another another space that was uh, sort of a space where people would meet was the hill behind the legislative building. So this is where the golden boy would live, right? So this is where people would see the golden boy. He would be up on the building uh-huh. and lots of men would be down on the hill cruising. Right. I mean, it's so perfect that there's like this glowing man 
you know, a nude man yeah. on top of kind like It doesn't a, get me clearer than that, I mean, it's eh? like, it's perfect. It is perfect. Yeah. yeah. Another spot that men would go to meet uh, was the bathhouses. Right. And, and we know that bathhouse mm-hmm. culture is a thing now. Back in 1914, when the first public baths were opened, they were used because not everyone had access to bathing facilities. I mean, yeah, I like Winnipeg was a frontier town. Not everybody was bathing regularly. I mean, if I have to be totally honest, when I think of history, I think of just people who smelled. Like everyone smelled. <laughs> there weren't baths. No one was showering. Right, right. You had to go mm-hmm. dig a well, get the water. Dig a well. <laughs> to heat it. Can you imagine heating water for a bath? People should. I can. It I did that. Been... Didn't we talk about this oh, a yeah. couple of episodes ago? Oh, this ago? is touching now. <laughs> Apologies. Oh. Um, oh. Awkward. But, but you took baths. Yes, I know what you mean. The people of history didn't. That's what I'm saying. Fast forward 50 years and the bathhouse culture had shifted to a space where straight men and gay men could coexist with straight men turning a blind eye. So according to Jerry Walsh, the author of Backward Glances, a self-published document about Winnipeg's gay community. The elderly straight men came mainly for the steam. They spent hours steaming and hitting themselves with oak leaf switches. They also brought food, beer or wine and made a night of it. The gays at first tried to outstay them, but it was a losing battle, so they didn't flaunt it, but went about doing what they had come for. The old-timers went about their thing and didn't seem to notice or care what else went on. Doesn't that sound great? I mean, it I does, but it's actually shocking to me yeah. that you had some, like, old Italian men, like, you know, beating also, themselves with switches and just they're like, well, Paul and Steve are over there in the corner. I'm going to look the other way. Like, it's great. Use that steam. Okay, so another surprising thing, and this is one of my favorite things that I learned. Chinese-run businesses like the Moon Cafe and the New Main Cafe were havens for queer people in the 1920s and 30s. And this this wasn't specific to Winnipeg at all. This was happening across the country. And why? Well, what I think it is, is I think Chinese business owners could count on queer clientele to be pretty discreet and respectful. It was mutually beneficial, um, the arrangement, at a time when racism towards the Chinese was pretty prevalent across the country. Mm -hmm. I found sources that said things like, the Chinese owners never bugged you, and you felt more trust with the Chinese fellows who ran the restaurant. They never said anything negative. Identifying these places was really important for safety, convenience, and for community. When a location was established as a meeting point, it became incredibly important. Because being homosexual at this time could get you attacked, discriminated against, or imprisoned. During that time, the average Canadian, as seen in the CBC Toronto clip from 1959, was pretty homophobic. Do you think that they are in any way a danger to our society? I believe uh, they are, in my own humble opinion. I think they should be locked up. You think that they should be put away? Do you think that they are uh, a danger, a menace? Yes, definitely. Being accused of homosexuality in these days could also mean alienation from your family, your friends, your community. If you were a woman and a lesbian, you could have your children taken away. You could lose your job. Some employers would put it as a clause in your contract. You could be terminated if you were homosexual. Attitudes like this made it very easy for women to be institutionalized. There are many accounts across the country of people being given lobotomies, which, and this is hard to hear, it means that part of their brains were cut out. And shock therapy to quote-unquote cure homosexuality. 
More than 10 years ago, a 19-year-old girl went to a psychiatrist because she had discovered she was a lesbian. She ended up in a mental institution. The girl spent three years in and out of institutions because, she says, she refused to be cured of that disease. Joining me now is Sheila Gilhooley. Welcome, Sheila. Thank you. What made you go for psychiatric treatment in the first place? Well, I was 19. I just realized that I was a lesbian. On the one hand, I felt good about that and that I knew that that was definitely who I was. But I also knew that uh, it wasn't a regular, normal, okay thing to be. As you said, you were on a lot of drugs at the time. A lot of drugs. Um, I had shock treatments in one hospital, which made it impossible for me to, uh, to hold much of a job down for a year, to uh, go back to school, which is what I wanted to do, which is what I had been doing when I first got locked up. They sent me to a large uh, place with large wards and people who after a couple of weeks I realized some of them had been there 20 years, 25 years, like forever. And actually they didn't, most of them seem particularly strange. I mean, they went about their day to day, they ate and slept and did everything like everybody else did. Mm -hmm. So I think that what I decided was uh, not that I was okay, but that I couldn't stand being there anymore. And How I did you get out? I got out by just being really bland and really normal and really kind of ordinary, normal in quotation marks, just uh, never being too up or too down, as invisible as I could be. Um, I didn't say that I wasn't going to be a lesbian anymore, but I stopped insisting that what I really wanted to be was be a lesbian and be left alone about it. How could I you, how could you, um, this happened to you almost a decade ago, do you think this mm -hmm. could still happen today? I mean, attitudes have certainly changed about, about being gay. But attitudes about being different are not that different. I think it depends on when they get you. In 1948, the people in the British colony of Newfoundland faced a choice. They could become an independent dominion within the British Empire, or they could vote to join Canada in Confederation. The anti-Confederates are not going to get away with it. But St. John's was an anti-Confederate headquarters. Watch in particular the attractive bait which will be held out to lure our country into the Canadian mousetrap. Listen to the Stories Behind the History podcast for our special series, How Did Newfoundland Join Canada? Available now wherever you get your podcasts. World War I and II played an important role in the evolution of prairie queer identity. When Canada joined the war, many rural people passed through larger cities, cities like Montreal, New York, Paris, and London for the first time, and these places had larger queer scenes. Right, and those who enlisted were serving alongside people of the same gender, so... So yes, there would have been mingling. When the war was over, men and women who had enlisted returned home to Winnipeg, and some brought home a newfound understanding of their own sexuality. That makes sense. But if you were caught engaging in a same-sex relationship, you would be dishonorably discharged. Yes, for sure. It must have been so extreme. You're in a war, but you are also maybe finding love in a way that's brand new to you. And then you can be punished as a result of that. You know? Yeah, like really extreme spectrum of feelings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this isn't to say that people came back home and were all of a sudden out. Double lives and hidden identities were still very much commonplace. Many people were living, from an outside perspective, a seemingly hetero life. 
Some wives even accepted that their husbands would have dalliances with other men, and it was perceived as just blowing off steam in order to remain married and maintain the status quo. Also, cultural institutions, of course, you know, artistic places like the Royal Winnipeg Ballet, the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra, and the Manitoba Theatre Centre, these spaces had well-known out people working for them and with them. Yeah. And you could get away with being less than straight if you were, let's say, artistic. Makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> and I mean, you you know, you would have people touring in and out of the city because the railway was a stop in that vaudeville circuit. Mm-hmm. So it, it ver- there were lots of people coming in and out of the city from larger urban centers. Listen, if you want great art, things to look fantastic, you know, if you if you want to live in a great area, go to where the gay people are. That was true then. That is true now. It will always be yeah. true. Yeah, yeah. That's all. (laughs) So a big change in Winnipeg, especially for queer women and all women, was the relaxation on the liquor laws. Because prior to 1957, mixed gender drinking was prohibited in Manitoba. Women did drink in bars in Winnipeg, but it was usually women who were more working class women. And they were drinking Mm. in the north end of the city and were working class establishments. You know, it was sort of frowned on to go out and drink. So this is, Mm. you know, in 57, then we start seeing the advent of places like cocktail bars right. where it becomes a, the the culture of drinking becomes a different thing. Right, right, right. So we're moving we're sailing into madman territory. I know, I totally right? that's all I could think about. <laughs> Everyone's got a cigarette, they're drinking a martini. Everybody looks great. Everyone looks amazing until they go home and, they're, and then their secrets and it's eating yeah. them alive because nobody talked about anything back then. No. And that's no. why everyone drank. Okay, so that was 50s culture, very madman. What was 60s mm-hmm. culture? Uh, well, 60s queer culture was no longer hidden in the same way that it had it had once been. Uh, places like Moore's on Portage Avenue became a prominent queer hangout. Um, so much so that the owners would actually host uh, private parties for just their queer clientele. I love that so much. Um, when Morris closed, Mardi Gras, which was just next door, became the popular hangout. Club 654, which is also a bit of a, a wink and a nod. In what way? I know. I, <laughs> I was hoping you would ask. So <laughs> six. Mm-hmm. And then if you add five plus four is nine. So Club 69. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. What is remarkable about all of these spaces is that According to Tourism Winnipeg, there were no police raids on these gay bars. That's so interesting because I know police raids were so common around the world at this time. Obviously, the most famous being Stonewall, but there was Cooper's Donuts in 1959, Compton's Cafeteria Riot in 1966, there was Black Cat in 67. I mean, so many more. The openness of spaces like this and the growing visibility of queer people made some individuals uncomfortable. At this time, many students and activists began to raise their voices, but space was so important. And Margot made space with her own coffee shop. It wasn't safe to go to a regular bar and hold your girlfriend's hand. It wasn't safe for two men to kiss in a, in a, in a bar like that. I think, I mean, things have shifted a lot. Um, but so to have spaces where you could go, we knew that it was your space. If somebody straight came in there, that was up to them to adjust, not up, up to us to keep adjusting around, around them. At one point, myself and five other women 
created a coffee shop called Winona's. And it was to be a, a gay and lesbian positive space. We hired gay and lesbian staff, and but it was a, an above ground place. So a lot, often a lot of bars, uh, gay bars, are have were at that time hidden behind somewhere. Go to the back door, knock on it twice, or go up the big staircase and turn left and then right, and you'll find it. So this was just a little cafe, and um, it was in our neighborhood, and we felt that that was a way of being seen. In addition to the scene that was going on in Winnipeg, there were a number of women who had moved out of the city because it was cheaper, plus they wanted the idea of having their own land. So there'd be these work parties where we would go out and help with this building. I personally know nothing about one end of the hammer to another, but I can lift a few things here and there. But I think I was coming out of a desire for women to be independent and not so reliant on men to do everything that they could create this as women's space. So just all these things were about building community. And eventually queer organizations in Winnipeg would start to put out guides that identified queer friendly locations. I mean, that's interesting. It reminds me of the actual Green Book, not right. the questionable Oscar winning yes. film that robbed, I say robbed Spike Lee of an Oscar. I agree. But the Negro Motorist Green Book, which was a travel guide for African-American drivers to point out roadside stops that would not give them any problems if they were traveling. This is at the time of segregation. So the dangers of traveling while black could be life-threatening. Yeah, you definitely see the parallels there. Yeah. there. yeah. This is from a directory that the Gay Winnipeg Community Center created in 1984. For the visitor new resident or individual just coming out in the Winnipeg gay slash lesbian community, information on where a person may meet others like him or herself is often difficult to obtain. This booklet is meant to help fill that void. That's so great. I know. I this booklet that. is not intended to provide a comprehensive guide to the Winnipeg gay slash lesbian scene. Instead, it is designed to act as an introduction with the hope that prospective readers will have an easier adjustment to Winnipeg. I love it. And then it has a whole table of contents. What's going on at the Winnipeg Gay Community Center, bars of all kinds, it says, cafe, restaurants, baths, gay, lesbian events and happenings, gay, lesbian areas of Winnipeg. There's a map, Mm -hmm. magazines that you can get, gay and lesbian media, gay and lesbian medical and legal. That's amazing. And then community listings. Seems very comprehensive. They also say, we regret that the center is not conveniently wheelchair accessible. Persons may request assistance in advance. The board of director asks that persons who require assistance arrange for a member to join them while they are at the center. Amazing. Right. And then there's this legend underneath it that says access for the handicapped. So you can't even find this stuff now. They were... Ahead of things. Way in a ahead ma- of major, in so major many way. ways. So does it say anything about the legislative grounds? Like, does it say anything about Golden Boy? Oh, yeah. Uh, so it says, south of the Assiniboine River and north of Pembina Highway, suntanning when in season, cruising mm. after dark, but possible assaults. Mm. So according to Jerry Walsh, the unmanicured state of the city's parks allowed men to have privacy and discretion while seeking encounters. And I know in St. John's Park, that was it had kind of a slangy nickname called Banana Park. Yeah. And there were no fences. And the park emptied out, I think, around 10. And then by 1030, it would begin to fill with gay men looking to cruise. Yeah. 
After dark, the park around the Manitoba legislature is a meeting place for homosexual men. They call it the Hill. Gay prostitutes come here, and so do many looking to meet someone. Male prostitutes have been hustling near the grounds of the legislature for several years. A residence group is starting a campaign this weekend to force the hookers out. At night, the hill is a place of secrets. The threat of violence has always lurked here. But some say now that violence has got out of hand. They say the attackers come in groups. Seen as many as up to 12 guys get out of a car or several cars and they'll be carrying sticks or, uh, in one instance, two by fours. And they'll go chasing after a whole bunch of, of gay people and, and they'll wait till they can single one out. I was scared down to my skivvies. I was upset. I felt like I was a target right then. Yeah, I was scared. They'll swarm some guy or some girl and I mean, they don't have a chance, you know? I mean, nothing brings it on. It's just, there's a gay guy, let's get him. In Winnipeg, police blamed gay bashing for a murder this summer. And many say the beatings have become more frequent because of AIDS. And now with the AIDS problem, I think we're using um, the gay community's a scapegoat. I don't think they should be spreading the disease here. And if that's the case, they should be charged. Gays, you know, are spreading the disease, you know, everybody's got it, so. When gay people complain, for example, of being assaulted, the police take no interest in discovering the attackers or solving the case, but rather harass the victim as to whether or not he or she is homosexual, why they were, what they were doing and why they were doing it. The Manitoba gay community refused to be filmed, but several hundred of them came out this afternoon to hear about the disease that has ravaged the homosexual community in the United States and which threatens to do exactly the same thing in Canada. So we can't talk about Winnipeg's gay history and queer history without talking about Chris Vogel and Richard North. They were really active in Winnipeg's community. They were okay. part of uh, Gays for Equality. They helped to get the first gay pride parade off the ground. Cool. And they also fought really hard mm -hmm. to have their marriage recognized, but were eventually denied in court. Wow. North went on a 59-day hunger strike in 1985 to protest Manitoba's human rights code lack of protection for sexual orientation. They really helped to transform the landscape. Um, they were part of this gay media collective in the 80s, which created a show called Coming Out. It was a 30-minute cable access TV show that put queer content in the spotlight. I want to play you the theme song because it's been stuck in my head Please for days do. and because I, I, it's, I love this I so much. It. Okay. Coming Out, a weekly program produced by gay men and women for and about the homosexual community in Winnipeg. We've planned this program to interest our family and friends as well. So even if you're not gay, why not join us for the next half hour? We'd like you to find out more about what we're really like. I love the lyrics. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's really about acceptance and about love. Can you imagine being like a young queer kid in Winnipeg sitting in front of your TV, having all of these feelings and having nowhere to put them? And then all of a sudden on your TV comes this beacon of hope that gives mm -hmm. you a ref you see a reflection of yourself. Yeah. It makes me weepy. <laughs> it just makes me weepy to think that this what this may have offered people. Mm hmm. Here's Ken DeLisle on the 80s television show Coming Out, talking about his experience with gay conversion therapy. I used to go twice a week to start with. I had electrodes tied to my, I guess, the back of my hand. And 
any time that I would look at a photo of a naked man or fantasize about a naked man, I would get a bolt of electricity. Which was painful. Well. Oh, yes. And it would increase as you went on with it because your body built up resistance to it. So week by week, whatever, it would get a little higher. I also, this wasn't the painful part, but kind of embarrassing part, I had a counter that I had to carry around with me. And any time there was a homosexual fantasy or a thought, I had to record the number. Uh, and it would go down because your body's resisting to the pain. You don't want the pain. <laughs> that went on for about, I guess the first part went about for a year and a half. And then uh, they pronounced me cured. I was dating women. I still had never had sex with a woman. I still haven't. But I, six months later, I was getting the fantasies again. So I went back for a, another dose. And that's when I decided not to go back. Why? It just suddenly struck me that what I was doing was trying to deny something that I am, for whatever reason, God created me gay. Mm -hmm. And trying to be, ver go through aversion therapy to change something that is a given is like trying to I don't know, change your color of your skin. It's a given. You can't do it. I could have sex with a woman. wouldn't make me heterosexual. Mm -hmm. I cannot convince with my mind, convince myself that I'm black. Yeah. I'm not. I can't convince myself that I'm blonde. Yeah. I can't convince myself that my eyes are green. These are part of me that can't be changed. Mm -hmm. And the orientation is a part of me that can't be changed. So in the 80s, as Winnipeg queer culture pushed forward, more and more organizations began to form, and one was Nichiwaken Native Gay Society, which began in 1986. I spoke with Albert McLeod, a Cree Two-Spirit elder, about what that term Two-Spirit means um, and how it came to be, because that also is a really contemporary term. Interesting. Okay, I'm Albert McLeod. I'm the co-director of the Two-Spirited People of Manitoba, and I'm from the Cree Nation. Well, we began our organizing in Winnipeg in 1986, and uh, part of it was in response to the needs of uh, Indigenous youth living in the city who were queer, as well as, I think, to the impact of the AIDS epidemic, which was uh, affecting Indigenous gay men at the time. So it was something we couldn't sort of not be aware of, but really look towards how we could support each other in an urban context. I think right across Canada, the gay uh, bar scene was where a lot of urban Indigenous uh, LGBT people ended up, just because it was a sense of community, a sense of belonging, but also a sense of safety. And so, you know, from Vancouver all the way to Halifax, uh, it was the broader gay community that was really a place where we felt that we belonged. But I think as time went on, we really saw the need to develop our own spaces, our own uh, expressions of identity and culture that were unique to our identities. So the introduction of the term Two-Spirit came about in 1990. So it's unique in the way that it identifies spirituality in combination or in reference to gay people, which is something that historically hasn't happened before. You know, we're used to the acronym LGBTQ, but it doesn't really talk about spirituality. You know, post-colonization, Indigenous queer people who were really 
seen as, you know, abominations or not really fitting into the colonial uh, gender structure, uh, we're referencing spirituality as an important aspect of the identity. So it really resonated at the time. And after 1990, a lot of the groups picked up that descriptor or that definition. You know, gender identity or sex or sexual orientation uh, from an indigenous lens, that is sort of seen as a, a gift that we all carry and that as two-spirit people, we contribute to the sort of the development of our nations and that would include, you know, the, the men in our communities and the women in our communities and the children as well, that we bring something to the circle. And now we have a lot of youth in this generation who are coming out uh, without being in the closet, which I think is really healthy. Uh, and, you know, sort of knowing who they are, uh, what they want in their life, and really contributing, uh, you know, to the communities around them. The work of people like Albert really helped to advance the movement. Yeah. Winnipeg's first Pride Parade took place on August 2nd, 1987, right after the amendments to the Human Rights Code. Here's Margot again. 1987, the first Pride March in Winnipeg. There were about a couple of hundred people there. And it was because the Manitoba Human Rights Code had recently included sexual orientation so it was a celebration of this. I remember arriving with my bicycle and meeting my girlfriend there. Some people were putting brown paper bags over their heads. And I was like, what? Because I was kind of used to in this, this artist bubble that I lived in that things were pretty cool. But if you were a teacher, it wasn't cool. If you were working for the provincial, maybe also the municipal government, it wasn't cool. I remember people staring at us, and I began to feel uncomfortable. I began to feel like I'm being treated like an it or a thing, or that something that somebody can't even conceive of. It was really, really important that everybody turn out. So people would be phoning each other and contacting each other before, are you going? I'll meet you at this place. If I turn up or don't turn up to the Pride Parade in Toronto with the thousands and thousands in the street and the more thousands and thousands on the sidewalk cheering, it doesn't matter if I turn up or not. But if it matters to turn up because you need to be counted, you need to be seen, then I would still do, it, do that if I had to. I came across so many amazing individuals and organizations, and I wish we could have included them all. Uh, people like Ruth Crindle, the first female crown attorney to be appointed in Manitoba in 1971, and the first woman, an openly lesbian person, to be appointed to the Court of Queen's Bench in Manitoba in 1984. Or there's Glenn Murray. He was the first gay mayor in all of North America, serving from 1998 to 2004. Here's an interview with Glenn Murray right after his election win. Mr. Mayor, I guess the national importance of this story is that just about a dozen years ago, a victory like yours would have been virtually unthinkable. Would you agree with that? A lot more difficult for sure than probably today. Did you ever imagine you could reach this kind of social acceptance? No. I mean, when I, when I was a teenager, there, 
I don't think there was anyone who I was aware of or most people were aware of who would ever even identify themselves as a gay or lesbian person. Uh, they almost were visible in the world. When do you think attitudes really began to change so that this day would be possible? A wave of human rights legislation change, but m most importantly, it was the simple statements by gay and lesbian people who started to talk to themse about themselves and the I and the we. And then, of course, the AIDS epidemic. Many people found out uh, that many of the people they knew were gay, and the courage of many people with AIDS as they struggled in, in a very difficult epidemic, we owe a, a great deal of debt to as well. What are the lessons in this? Winnipeg is an incredibly dynamic and wonderful city. Uh, and, and if I was speaking to you from Vancouver or Toronto, that might seem to be some for some people, more of, a, more of the kind of place you would expect uh, someone who was gay to be elected in. Uh, because it's Winnipeg, I, I think that it challenges many of the stereotypes that people have about the city. It is a very progressive, dynamic, and, and, and socially wide open city. Uh, we, we've got to realize as Canadians, and this is important in dealing with any minority issue, that we have more in common with each other than we have in, as differences. And I think what has happened in Winnipeg and continues to happen in the city, we reach out to each other because we understand we want decency, we want respect, we want to be able to contribute to our communities. Uh, and, and if we put the differences before the commonalities, we just create division. And this is a country that can't afford uh, more division than it has. And we're certainly a city that, that, that uh, takes great pride in, in our ability to be united in, uh, as, as a fact of our diversity. Winnipeg isn't a gay utopia today. Make no mistake, there are still changes and, and things that need to happen. But I think if we can look back to some of the forefounders of queer history and queer movements in the city, I think it'll help the city move forward. I think it'll help us to understand what this movement has been built on. I wanted to leave us today with a story from Valerie Kornick, who tells us a little bit more about Golden Boy. One of the anecdotes that I loved about Winnipeg was a man born and raised in Winnipeg who laughingly remembered that when he first moved away from Winnipeg, he thought, okay, well, when I get to a new city, I just look for a statue of Golden Boy, and then I'll know where the queer community is. I thought that was just um, such a revealing and sweet anecdote about growing up in Winnipeg, because indeed there is a, a golden-winged god on the, on the roof of the Manitoba legislature. And for queer men, it has a double meaning that it doesn't have for straight Manitobans. The Secret Life of Canada is recorded in Toronto on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, Wendat, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit. It's written and hosted by me, Phelan Johnson. And me, Leah Simone Bowen. And produced by Katie Jensen. Our script editor is Yvette Nolan. Research assistance is provided by John Weir, the folks from CBC Archives, and the CBC Image Research Library. A very special shout out to Kate Seaman, who is the Senior Media Librarian at CBC. 
Our digital producer is Fabioli Carletti. The senior producer of CBC Podcast is Tanya Springer. And the executive producer is RF Norani. If you want to read more about Winnipeg's queer history, check out the University of Manitoba archives. And special thank you to Nicole. Also, big thank you to Cole Elvis and to Aaron Floresco, director and producer of One Gay City, a fantastic documentary that we will link to on our website. Come hang out with us in our Facebook group. You can chat with us about this episode or check out other cool history related posts and tell us what you think. We're also on Instagram and Twitter at Secret Life of CAD. If there's a story you want to hear in an episode or a piece of history you want to tell us about, email us at secretlifeofcanada at cbc.ca. If you liked what you heard, or even if you didn't, please review us on iTunes. It really helps other people find us. Thanks for exploring Canada's hidden history with us, and remember to pass it on. If you like this podcast, check out Uncover the Village. For years, Gay men were disappearing from Toronto's village. Police said they weren't connected, but they were. And it turns out that was only the beginning of the story. Subscribe to Uncover the Village wherever you get your podcasts. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.